Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Keith Smith from Celtics blog and Spotrack in just a little bit. We'll get into what is realistic from the Celtics at the deadline. He had a great article up on Tuesday morning about the intel he's hearing surrounding the Celtics. So we'll have a great time chatting with Keith about what could possibly happen for the Celtics team at the deadline. Oh, also... I have my top five Boston trade deadline deals since 2000. It was tough, actually, to narrow it down to five. The Bruins have had a lot of good ones, and the Red Sox have had a lot of good ones as well. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. But where I want to start is with the Brady-Belichick interview, right? I'm sitting down to watch the Seas Pistons on Monday night, and all of a sudden I see all these tweets coming in about Bill being on Tom's podcast. And <laughs> look, not that we thought there would be like massive fireworks in this podcast, right? There was certainly some interesting things in there that I want to get into, but I feel like what happened, the reaction on social media last night, and today has been a lot of, well, so people thought there was a rift between Bill and Tom. There was a rift between Bill and Tom. We can't dismiss this. Just because Bill went on Tom's podcast like a week after Tom retired doesn't mean that there wasn't a rift at the end, but I felt like the reaction from social media made it sound like, hey, everybody that thought there was a rift between Bill and Tom, you guys are idiots, but Clearly, Bill and Tom have resolved a lot of their issues, but let's not pretend because Bill went on the podcast that there weren't massive issues to begin with. Remember, you go back to that Sunday night game in 2021 between the Pats and the Bucks. Brady and Bill met for 25 minutes after the game. You don't meet for 25 minutes after a game if everything's good. They hadn't talked in person since Tom left for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I get the part of that is COVID and all that, but they hadn't legitimately talked in person since Tom went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So if everything was good. Do you think they were going to talk for 25 minutes? I mean, just think about all the issues that these two guys had at the end. 
First of all, let's go to one of the obvious ones. Malcolm Butler. (laughs) Remember Brady on Malcolm Butler? Well, I don't make those decisions when he was asked why Malcolm didn't play in the Super Bowl. I wish he would have played, but the coach didn't play him and we still had a chance to win. Brady went on to say, I asked Malcolm and Malcolm said, I don't know. Coach has just decided something different. I said, okay. Malcolm kept coming over to me during the game and was like, come on, TB, let's go. And I kept going. What defense are we in where Malcolm's not on the field? This is what Brady was saying after that Super Bowl game when he did that whole speech with Jim Gray, where they're peppering him with these questions about Malcolm Butler. And obviously, Brady controlled that whole thing. He knows everything Jim Gray is going to ask him. So he wanted to answer those questions. Brady threw for 500 yards in the Super Bowl, and the coach didn't play a guy that played 98% of the snaps during the regular season. They had that issue. How about Brady and Guerrero? Remember that whole thing where... This is from Seth Wickersham's piece in ESPN a couple years ago. Brady and Guerrero's training beliefs introduced an unspoken pressure in the building with players wondering where they should work out. New players felt that the surest way to earn Brady's trust was to join Rob Gronkowski, Danny Amendola, and others by seeking advice from Guerrero at his TB12 clinic and not team doctors, which Belichick preferred, okay? And then what happened? Belichick eventually stripped Guerrero from being on the sideline. So Brady's trainer had been on the sideline. He was stirring up trouble, according to Bill. Like, Bill didn't like what he was doing, where Bill felt that he was, like, recruiting players to work out with him. Like, they just felt like there was a divide when it came to that particular situation. So Belichick stripped him of his sideline privilege. This is the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, and all of a sudden is trainer's not there anymore. That irritated Brady. No matter what side you end up on, whether you're defending Bill for this, whether you think Brady's in the right, either way, they were not in agreement on this particular situation. And then remember this, Brady and Bill met in October of 2017 to talk about Brady's contract because Bill was skeptical of giving him a long-term extension, as naturally we would find out. The meeting, according to Wickersham, ended in, quote, a little blow up. Okay, so Bill didn't want to give Tom that long term extension. And remember, also part of that is Bill didn't want to trade Jimmy Garoppolo. And you had a quote in that Wickersham story where they didn't want to be the Browns, right, where they didn't have a plan after Tom Brady at quarterback. Okay, so then Bill had a meeting with Robert Kraft and he was told to trade Jimmy Garoppolo. That's how the reporting went from Seth Wickersham. So what does Bill do? He trades Jimmy Garoppolo to the San Francisco 49ers for a second round pick. And remember, Bill Belichick is very good friends with Mike Shanahan. Mike Shanahan stuck up for Bill Belichick during Spygate. Mike Shanahan said, I wish I thought of it, to paraphrase what he said, right? Like he's the only coach that was like sticking up for Bill during this. So he's good friends with Mike. He trades him to Mike's kid, Kyle Shanahan. Well, at the same time, the Browns had made an offer for Jimmy Garoppolo, which included a first rounder that belonged to the Houston Texans. That ended up being the fourth pick in the 2018 draft. So because Bill was so mad that Robert Kraft wanted him to trade Jimmy Garoppolo and he was going to have to give Brady some sort of deal, Bill only got back in return a second round pick. Like this whole idea that Bill always does what's in the best interest of the football team He didn't in the Malcolm Butler situation, and he certainly did it in the Jimmy Garoppolo trade. There was a first round pick on the table, but he didn't want to do business with the Cleveland Browns, right? So that whole situation where Brady, the contracts, and then the Jimmy Garoppolo situation, that obviously pissed off Tom because Tom's like, "What? I'm the best quarterback in the history of the NFL, and you want to have this guy take over for me? So that irritated Tom. And then we all know how it ended. We talked about it last week. 
the incentive-laden deal in 2018 that we talked about in terms of Tom was going to get an extra million dollars for each of these things, passing yards, be in the top five, be in the top five in yards per attempt, top five in quarterback rating, completion percentage, all these different things that Tom, these thresholds he had to go to just to earn the extra $1 million. So that was an issue for Tom. Then in 2019, the void years, those were an issue for Tom, right? Where Tom basically got a fake extension. And then what did Tom want? Tom wanted the power to not be franchised. And he got that clause in the contract. So yes, this whole idea that because Bill and Tom were together on a podcast last night meant there was no rift. I don't understand where people were getting that from. There was clearly a rift and there was a massive problem at the end. Tom was telling you by getting that in his contract that he wanted out. He wasn't going to play for the Patriots anymore when he said, hey, you can't franchise me after the season. And the Patriots agreed to it, right? And if Bill really wanted Tom or if Bill really wanted to hold power over Tom and didn't want Tom to leave, he wouldn't have given him that in the contract. He wouldn't allow Kraft to do it because Bill would have said, we can't let you go. Like, I got to have this power, right? The other thing I would mention is this. So you had Butler, you had Guerrero, you had Brady's contract, you had Garoppolo. These were all issues. There was a rift between the two parties. Let's not pretend there wasn't this because these two talked on Monday night. And by the way, the Browns comment where Bill wanted to have a succession plan, that's why he didn't want to trade Jimmy Garoppolo. Doesn't it make it even more shocking that the plan after Tom originally was Jarrett Stidham and Brian Hoyer? Because remember, they didn't get Cam Newton until the end of that uh, that offseason. But you were willing to let Brady go after the 2019 season when Stidham and Hoyer were your quarterbacks. It's unbelievable. And then really, if you think about it, the Patriots sort of got lucky with Mac, right? Mac was the 15th overall pick in the draft. And when they picked Mac, four quarterbacks went before Mac in that draft. How rare is that where you have five quarterbacks go in the top 15? You very rarely see that. So they even got lucky finding the next guy after Mac, right? But think about why both guys do this podcast, right? So for Tom, he knows how much Bill did for him. He said it in the conversation last night, quote, there's no one I'd rather be associated with. Brady understands what Bill meant to his early development. How could he not, right? Tom is very grateful for that. But also, we know that Tom, he lives by the four agreements, right? A practical guide to personal freedom. He's referenced this multiple times. Part of the book or part of the agreements, one of the agreement, uh, agreements is don't take anything personally. So you think Tom wants to hold a grudge? Hell no, he doesn't. He lives by these agreements, right? And there's no reason for Tom to. If anything, Bill indirectly helped Tom grow his legacy because he won in Tampa, right? <laughs> Bill didn't mean to do it that way, but he did. Bill failing to evaluate Tom properly and wanting to move on from Tom because that's exactly what he wanted, in the long run, it actually helped Tom Brady. And the other thing that you think about is Tom doesn't want the bad blood between him and Bill at the end to be the long-term story, right? He wants the story to be the success they had together. He wants that to be the memory, which it should be. They won six Super Bowls together. But all we talked about for the past really six years, going back to when Tom was here for the final three years, is the bad blood. Tom wants to put an end to that shit. And then on Bill's side, why wouldn't he do this interview with Tom and try to take some of the heat off himself and look like a human? He actually looked like a human being in that podcast praising Tom Brady. Bill right now, let's be real, he has egg on his face. Even if you want to defend Belichick, if you're the biggest Belichick defender in the world, Bill has egg on his face. He looks bad. His franchise has been crippled by his bad decisions. The decision to move on from Tom was wrong. And then he fucked over his new quarterback this year 
by promoting Matt Patricia to play caller. It's been a dumpster fire since Brady has left, right? Bill knows going on this podcast. He's going to be praised by Tom. He knows that. And Tom is going to be insanely thankful to Bill. Tom was emotional in that interview after Bill said he had the best career ever, best quarterback ever, all that. Tom was emotional, right? So why wouldn't Bill Belichick do this interview? Like Tom is over being upset over the final few years in New England. Clearly, he doesn't care. He won in Tampa and he wouldn't have won in New England. He's over that. He was better off going to Tampa, right? And I think Tom always wanted Bill's approval, right? So this interview, he certainly gets that. But I believe Tom is now three years removed from the bad blood. He genuinely wants to thank Bill. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted Bill on his podcast so he could thank Bill. That's how good of a guy Tom Brady is. In a way, actually, he's throwing Bill a bone here. After all the bad blood, after the doubting that Bill showed in Tom, this guy is still looking out for Bill. And sure, Bill deserves a ton of credit. We've said that. He deserves a lot of credit, especially for developing Tom early. But most guys would not do this after they felt betrayed. It's only been three years. And Tom's already over it. Tom's already like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. I'm over it. I won. I've had my fun. I I want to remember the good times with Bill. His gratitude to Bill overtakes the anger he felt towards the end at Bill in his direction. And Tom gets to present the human side of Bill in this as well. He even in retirement is saving Bill Belichick like he did against the Falcons, like he did against the Chiefs in the AFC title game in 2018. He's saving Bill even in retirement. Patriots fans feel really happy after listening to this. One interesting thing I will say from this that Bill said, he was asked about Tom's biggest strength and he referenced elevating players around him and then his mental capacity. This is what Bill had to say. Tom would come over to the sideline and Bill would say, hey, what happened on that play? And he'd go through eight things that happened. The tackle flashed in front of me. This guy slipped. I saw the linebacker drop wide. The safety was a little deeper than I thought he would be. Then this guy stepped in front and I kind of put it a little bit behind him because I saw this other guy closing. And then you would go back and you would look at the film and every one of those things would have happened in the exact sequence that he explained it to you on the field. I'm like, this guy sees everything. And that's a great sort of summary of Tom Brady in terms of what his greatest strength is, right? That's his superpower. He knows where everyone's going to be, including the defense. But the way that Bill explained it in that podcast was just awesome. Bill was like, Hey, uh, Tom, why did you do that? Oh, this is why I did it, coach. And then he'd go back in the film room the next day and be like, okay, it actually worked out exactly that way. So it was a lot of fun hearing those guys talk for an extended period of time. And I just think Brady's such a good dude. I mean, that's the way that I come out of this. He is such a good dude. He doesn't want the end to be the story. He doesn't want the bad blood to be the story. And put yourself in that position. You have somebody that betrays you, doesn't believe in you anymore after everything you've done for that organization, for Tom to just put that shit behind him. I mean, it's pretty crazy (laughs) what a great guy Tom is. Okay, uh, two other Patriots notes. The first one, Keenan Allen, the athletic reports, he could be a cut. So they have to pay Herbert there. That's why Keenan Allen, especially because of his age, he could be a cap casualty here. So you've heard my take on who I want. I want Jerry Judy. Jerry Judy is going to cost less than T. Higgins at a trade because Higgins has more of a reputation right now in the league. Judy against man coverage last year, 21.9 yards per reception, third in the NFL, cut 73.7% of his targets against man coverage. He's coming off his 24-year-old season, and I'd love pairing him with Mac Jones, a guy that covers on quickly. It's the perfect sort of receiver for Mac. But let's just say the hypothetical is you can't trade for Higgins and you can't trade for Jerry Judy, right? Which, like I said, the route I would take is trading for Jerry Judy. But the Patriots, if those one of those two guys isn't here next year, 
the Pats should be all in on Keenan Allen, try to get this done. He fits with Mac too. He's a guy that can play in the slot. He gets open really quickly. Now, Judy and Higgins are different because they're trades and they wouldn't have say over this. But with Keenan Allen, why would he want to come here, right? Like I'm saying, if he's there and you can't get one of these other guys via trade, you should go after him. But what's the sell for Keenan Allen? You're on the other side of 30. Obviously, he hasn't won a Super Bowl. Like, these are the type of players the Patriots used to be able to land because you had an easy sell. Hey, we're playing in the AFC Championship basically every season, right? We do it every single year. You have a chance to go to a Super Bowl. Like, it would be intriguing. Even guys on the defensive side, like Chris Long, came here for a year when he knew he was going to take a lesser role because he knew he was going to have an opportunity to get to a Super Bowl. You don't really have that sell anymore. That's why, to me, in terms of the receiver market, the trade market makes more sense. Okay, one other Patriots note is... Nick Cayley, we found out late on Sunday, he's leaving to take the Rams tight end job. So the same job he had here. I just find this whole Cayley thing crazy because last year, Bill blocked him from going to the Raiders. He allowed Mick Lombardi to go to the Raiders with Josh. So clearly he thought more highly of Nick Cayley than he did Mick Lombardi. Now, Cayley interviewed for the Patriots offensive coordinator job and the Jets offensive coordinator job as well. Obviously, he didn't get either. At this point, though, there is no real way the Patriots could hire Nick Cayley. You can't have another guy calling plays that has never called plays before, right? Like, you needed to get Bill O'Brien. You had to bring Bill O'Brien in. He was the obvious choice for this organization. And look, I'll never understand why Cayley wasn't more of a candidate last year for this job. Because Judge and Patricia were incapable of running the Shanahan offense, right? We saw that on the field and we found out even more juicy details on the story in the Herald where basically they didn't have answers for the players on when the defense was doing certain things. So why wasn't just running the McDaniels offense with Kaylee more of a consideration? You blocked him from leaving. What was the damn point, right? And look, the tight end production was not good last year, but do, you, do we really think that it was the position coach or do we think it was the scheme and the play calling? I think it was the scheme and the play calling. Hunter Henry's targets went from 75 to 59. That's more on the play caller than it is the position coach. And we know the play action pass game, which obviously incorporates the tight end a ton. Max dropbacks in terms of play action went from 26% in 2021 down to 16% in 2022. That would have helped a guy like Hunter Henry last year as well. That's more on Patricia and Judge than it is on Nick Cayley. Now, here is the interesting component about him going to the Rams. McVay hired this guy by the name of Zach Taylor in 2017. He was the assistant wide receivers coach, and then he went to be the quarterbacks coach there on the same staff with the Rams. Okay, so he was never even the OC with the Rams. Then he gets the head coaching gig in Cincinnati, went to the Super Bowl, and this past season went to the AFC title game. Okay, in 2020, McVay hired Kevin O'Connell to be his offensive coordinator, which is just in title, basically, the offensive coordinator, because McVay's calling the plays. What happened with Kevin O'Connell? Well, he got the Minnesota job last offseason. He took them to the playoffs. So McVay has an eye for coaching talent. If Kaylee went to a team like the Cowboys or the Cardinals or the Colts, like one of these dysfunctional organizations, I'd be like, oh, no big deal. Who cares? But think about this from Kaylee's perspective. Where do you think he has a better chance to advance in his coaching career? The McVay coaching tree or the Belichick coaching tree, right? The McVay coaching tree is succeeding right now. Teams want guys connected to Sean McVay. So for years, being a Patriots assistant, you got on the short list for head coaching jobs. Think about it. Going back to the original guys, Rack, 
gets a head coaching job. Charlie Weiss goes to the collegiate level at Notre Dame. Mangini, McDaniels, O'Brien, Flores, Patricia, and even Joe Judds. These guys all got jobs. But finally, teams are realizing this isn't the way to go anymore. It's not picking guys off the Belichick tree. So this, to me, is a smart move by Nick Cayley. And I hope to all the best for Nick Cayley, but it's going to look really bad for the Patriots if in like a year or two, Nick Cayley's a head coach and you never actually gave that guy the opportunity to be the play caller. And instead, you leaned on Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. Like right now, they had to go with O'Brien based on the situation they put themselves in. But it really made no sense that they didn't give Cayley that opportunity in the 2022 season. Why did you block him then? All right, a lot more to get into We're going to chat with Keith Smith from Celtics blog in just a little bit. We'll get into what the Celtics can do at the deadline. What's realistic for these guys. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Celtics blog, it is Keith Smith. Has an article up right now. Great stuff on the trading deadline. Celtics trade until two days away from the deadline. So, and a lot of stuff surprised me in there, Keith. We'll get into that in a second. But thanks so much for joining us, man. I know it's a busy time for you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So, Keith, let's start with the big news that we heard yesterday is Stephen A. Smith on ESPN said, hey, look out for Kevin Durant. He could be on the move. And you had a source tell you that I'm sure Brad wouldn't want to disrupt things that much, but it's Kevin Durant. You make the call. Now, the way I look at this is I can't see them trading Jalen Brown like I thought before the season. Okay, it's Kevin Durant. You do it. He's one of the great offensive players in the game. But another injury for Durant, we saw Jalen improve. This is the best team in the NBA. I just can't see them putting Jalen on the table. So do you think this is more of just Brad and company doing their due diligence? Yeah, my my sense with even going back to that report from Stephen A. Smith, that was probably, I like to call that informed speculation versus like actual hard reporting, right? I think we're connecting some dots there of Kitty might want to trade and, you know, so on and so forth. And then, my read on the situation for everyone I've talked to that's close to it is over the summer, the Celtics were interested and there were obviously talks, but where it broke down was when it became Jalen Brown plus, 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 right? That's that's where it all fell apart for the Celtics because it's like, we're not going to give you Jalen Brown plus two players off a roster plus picks. And I don't think anything's changed. If anything, I think they're even less likely to do that here a couple of days out from the trade deadline because I think Brad Stevens' first trade deadline involved, man, I traded like seven guys and I had to rebuild an entire bench on the fly in the middle of the season. I don't think he wants to go through that again. If it was, hey, Jalen Brown for KD straight up, which can't even happen, but that's all it was, I think we'd be having a lot different conversation, but I don't get the sense that's what it is. So I think we're very much in a spot where it's going to be, you know, let's just kind of go you know, forward with what we got. But Again, how everybody phrases it is, it's Kevin Durant. So everybody makes the call. Yeah, it makes sense from that perspective. I just wonder from Durant's angle on this. I know he didn't speak to anybody after the game on Monday. I'm wondering where he's at. Keith, this feels like obviously an offseason move from the perspective of, well, you can get the whole league involved, right? It's Kevin Durant. It's more difficult to sell Durant on a trade to a team that's not in the playoff race right now when he's looking to win another championship at his age. So do you expect Durant to be moved or do you think he stays put? 
I think he stays put. I think for all the reasons you just laid out, that that's a summer move because if you're trading him somewhere, he's going to want to go there and know all right, who else is coming or who else are you going to go get? How are we going to build a title team out of this? And when a guy makes you know forty four plus million dollars, it just becomes very hard to do a salary matching trade that doesn't involve two or three guys going the other way. And chances are they're probably two or three pretty good players. Then you're having to rebuild your your depth. And that's just very hard to do here with a little over 48 hours to go to the trade deadline. So I think my guess is the Nets are trying to do what they can to kind of retool on the fly around Kevin Durant, build a team that's still pretty good that convinces him, all right, you know, I can ride this out. I'm good. I can stay here. I can win enough with the Nets. And if that fails, then this is a conversation we can have in July and kind of see what it looks like then. Yeah, and in terms of the Kyrie trade, they get back Dorian Finney-Smith, who is a 3 and D guy, although he's not shooting the ball great this year. Dinwiddie's a guy that we know can get baskets. They get a pick as well in that deal. I was kind of surprised that the market was as robust as it was for Kyrie Irving. What did you make of the Nets' return on that? Like The way I look at it is I think that They lowered their ceiling because as crazy as Kyrie is, we know he can get as hot as anybody in the league. We've seen him take over playoff games. But at the same point, you don't know what he's going to do, right? So at least the floor, I think, got higher for that team. But I do feel like they're less of a threat to the Celtics just because of, and I know they shut down Kyrie last year, but just because of how great of a scorer Kyrie can be. Yeah, that's it. You're Now, when you get into the fourth quarter of a tight game, you can load to Kevin Durant. And if Spencer Dinwiddie beats you, Spencer Dinwiddie beats you. You tip your cap and you move on, (laughs) right? With Kyrie, you're kind of like, well, we can't fully load to Kevin Durant because we still got to pay attention to Kyrie. And and then they get us kind of like the Warriors did to the Celtics in the finals, kind of get you in the blender and the ball starts pinging around. And then next thing you know, it's neither one of those guys, but it's Seth Curry or Joe Harris with a wide open shot that is one of the better shots in the league if those two guys are getting open looks. So now it's, all right, you know, load to KD, make sure your rotations are on point beyond that. And there's not going to be a second guy who's necessarily going to break you down. So from a Celtics perspective, Bucks perspective, 76ers, I think they're looking at it as, all right, the Nets are still an interesting team. I mean, you, you have to show up. You can't just roll the ball out and assume you're going to win, but you're not as necessarily worried about them as you were. But I think to your other point is, I, and I wrote this and when I kind of analyzed the trade was, yeah, their ceiling's lower, but I don't even know if their floor fell even by inches. Like, I think it's probably, all right, they're still fourth, fifth best team in the East. That's probably about where they were before the trade anyway. And now it's just the upside. It isn't quite there, but there's also a sense they're not done either. They they could move Dinwiddie. We know they tried to turn it into a three-team trade, but then the Mavs were like, we got to get this pushed through because we need Kyrie on the floor because I think Luke is still out for them. So they're trying to make sure they can get things moving on their side of things. So I think for the Nets, it's, hey, we're not fully done yet. We still got a couple of days of dealing to go. Let's see what we look like. We may be having a slightly different conversation about where their ceiling is uh, come Thursday afternoon. All right. So let's get to maybe the most interesting Celtic at the deadline, who I think is Grant Williams. So, and by the way, Grant's numbers in January have really slipped. He's shooting just 39.7% from the floor. Pre-January, he's at 51.7%, three-point shooting way down as well. And Keith, from my perspective, I do believe that his defense has slipped a little bit. Like some of the numbers would back that up, the isolation stuff. I know it's not perfect, right? But the isolation stuff has dipped. And when he's off the court, the defense has actually been better. But the interesting thing is from your reporting here in your article that he's looking for 18 to 20 million next season. And 
You had one source tell you that Brad would trade him if he could get a comparable player under team control. But as much as I say, like Grant's defense has slipped, we know how important he is in a possible series against the Bucs and against Giannis. So is there really a comparable player out there for Grant or do you expect them just to ride this out? And if Grant happens to get a big offer in the offseason, maybe they don't match it. Yeah, that's the important thing here is, yes, the Celtics would like somebody under team control, which that really means someone whose contract they don't have to deal with for at least a couple more seasons. That That's what the my reading on that quote was. But the Celtics still have all the control because Grant Williams is going to be a restricted free agent. So unless it gets really silly in terms of contract offers, and what I was told was they believe they've got 18 to 20 million waiting from a team. Now, that's not necessarily 18 to 20 million first-year salary. That right. might be 18 to 20 million average salary over the course of the life of a deal, which when you look at where the cap's going and those kind of things, four years, 80 million for Grant Williams, that's really not crazy, right? I, I know we've got to start to really very quickly here, start reframing what is a $20 million player in the NBA, <laughs> because that's a pretty good role player now on a title contender, right? So I, I think for the, the Celtic side of it is they would need somebody who could come in and be Grant Williams for them. And they're not going to get that. There's just not, it's no, I'm not saying Grant Williams is amazing. He's the greatest player on the team and he's completely irreplaceable, but finding with two days to go before the deadline, a guy who could come in and do all of the things he does for Boston. Very, very unlikely because the other thing that needs to be factored in to anything with Grant Williams is people have this sense of all he is, is a spot up shooter. Well, that's not true. He's doing a little bit more off the dribble now. Yes, his defense has slipped a little bit. I think some of that is play more on the perimeter than he has in the last couple of seasons. Yeah. <clears throat> I think he's better against those bigger wings and those smaller bigs that he could kind of bang with and use his strength and his size on those guys. But he's also a guy who's in a phenomenal teammate. They love him. I mean, who who gets ripped on more on that team than Grant <laughs> Williams, right? And that's yeah. how you know they love him, right? Because guys don't do that publicly unless it's somebody they truly care about and they want to have on the team. And that's important too. This is a team that's gone through a lot as far as chemistry issues go over the last several years. They finally hit the right mix, and that's really, really important. That's not something I think Brad Stevens is going to disrupt for a slight upgrade on where maybe things could go uh, for a playoff run. It's going to have to be a very clear we got a guy, we've got this guy for the next few seasons without any worries and off we go. And I just don't think they'll find that. Yeah, I'm completely with you. Like, I know I referenced some of the numbers dipping, but it's like he plays a very important role on this team. And the other team that you're zeroing in on has Giannis Antetokounmpo. Grant's one of the best in the league. You want Grant for Giannis Antetokounmpo. The other thing I'd mention about Grant, and this is just on the court thing, Keith, are you surprised? And I know Cornette's dealing with an injury now, but are you surprised we haven't seen more Grant at the five minutes? I know the minutes have not been great defensively, but I am kind of surprised they haven't gone to that more this season. Are you? A, a little bit. I, I wonder if that's trying to keep a little bit of wear and tear off him uh, mm. for, for the playoffs. I know he's a younger guy. You obviously don't have that concern with him like you do with an Al Horford or even with Rob Williams. But I think what we have seen is for the most part, they've settled into he plays the bulk of his minutes with either Horford or Rob Williams. Yeah. And when he's those three guys are kind of interchangeable the way the Celtics use them. Kind of, right? It's more they tend to let Horford or Grant take the more bulky traditional center type. And then they let Rob kind of do that Romer thing where he's just kind of helping off everybody on the corner or around lurking around the baseline all the time. So I think what we see with Grant Williams is 
that's that's more of the lineup constructions versus we're not seeing the need because Rob's healthy, because Al's healthy right now to say, all right, you're going to play the five with Jason Tatum at the four and those kind of things. Cause I think they worry a little bit about, we're asking a lot of everybody defensively there and on the glass and those kind of things. So I think that's all that is. I got you. So also you had up in your article that the C's are actually getting calls on Derek white. And I was surprised when I read this originally, but I guess it makes sense, right? Because of how many guards the Celtics have. I just think that Derek white is such a valuable player for them. I thought, defensively last year like he was their best matchup for Curry because the way that he gets around screens he was really good against the Pistons not to say that's the end all be all but like he's the plus minus king on this team right like outside of Jason Tatum do you think that's just teams look at the Celtics and say hey they have so much depth at the backcourt maybe they're willing to part with him but then I look at it Keith he's under control for a while here like I don't see them getting an upgrade on Derek White if he's in the deal do you no and that's exactly why the first word is why teams are calling. I think teams are realistic. They know we're not getting Marcus Smart. They're not trading the reigning defensive player of the year and everything he means to the franchise. There's a sense of, well, they just traded for Malcolm Brogdon. He's their sixth man. Well, is Derek White just kind of the third guy in that group? And the Celtics obviously don't see him that way. They see him as a key, important guy. It's funny. A lot of people are like, why isn't Malcolm Brogdon star when Marcus Smart is out? Well, they want Malcolm Brogdon in the six-man role. That's that's the role they traded for him for. He's very comfortable in it. They're going to leave him in it, so that becomes Derek White starts. And I think when they're healthy again, you're going to see those lineups coming off the bench are going to be White is the primary ball handler, and he's the one kind of facilitating and setting Brogdon up because that's what they did when all those guys were healthy uh, earlier in the season for that like week or two, it felt like that they had everybody, um, you know, maybe, maybe I might even be optimistic. It might only been like a week, um, but that's where they're going with that. So I think what's important to know with Derek white is the Celtics love him. They love that. He's they've got him on a very fair value contract for the next couple of years. He can fit in basically any lineup construction that, that Joe Missoula wants to put on the floor. So there's no reason to trade him now. Yeah. You blow them away with an offer. I'm sure they're going to listen, but that's true of, almost everybody in the, in the league. Right. I know I read, you know, Bill Simmons trade value and part of what he does there is like, don't even call on this. And I think what people forget is that list of don't even call is like five guys long. Right. And then it's all right. Yeah. But you really get to kind of, you know, move me here. Derek white, I think is, is not in the star level of that, but that's for role high end role players. It's all right. We gave up a first round pick and a pretty good player in Josh Richardson to get him. You're going to have to give us better than that to to get him away from us. And that's, again, I think they're setting that price because it's, hey, you want to get silly? All right, we'll talk. But unless you're willing to get silly, we're content to keep him around. Yeah, well, and to your point about him being the perfect role player, like in a vacuum, Malcolm Brogdon's a better player than Derek White is. I mean, he's got more to his offensive game. But when you look at it, Derek White at times, we've seen that uh, Joe Mazzulla has leaned with him in the closing lineups over Malcolm Brogdon at times just because it does feel like he fits better with the superstar level players, right, with Tatum and Brown because he makes quick decisions. He moves the ball quickly. So I think that in some sense, like, you need that guy, especially if Smart gets in foul trouble, if Smart's dealing with an injury where Derek White may make more sense to be in the closing lineup than Malcolm Brogdon, as crazy as that may have sounded before the season. Yeah, and he's a guy, too, even though they're, him and Brogdon are – similarly sized type players white can defend more different kind of players than brogdon can brogdon's not to your i think you said it white did a good job as much as anybody did a good job on stephen curry in the finals 
because he's quick enough, he's really good at getting skinny around screens. He's good at chasing off ball where Brogdon's a little bit better against, give me the, the James Hardens of the world. They're not yeah. so quick, a little more bulky of the, the kind of guards. So those are the guards that Brogdon does well against. We've even seen Missoula say to Brogdon in the last couple of weeks, Hey, go defend, um, you know, Bogdanovich the other night, go defend, uh, Anthony Davis, you're, yep. you're going to be the guy who picks up the opposing teams four and five, and we're going to let Rob roam around and kind of do what he does best. And and we've seen him hold up in those matchups. So that's something where I think, you know, that's that's just that difference in that lineup versatility. And I think because White is, he's not afraid to shoot it. And he's a little hit or miss. He's a little streaky as a shooter, but he can also really do a nice job of driving a closeout, making that swing pass, being that connector. That's so important because at the end of games, it almost doesn't matter who's out there with Tatum and Brown. If they're just out there, that's not enough. You need guys who are going to play fearless, guys who can connect, guys who can take the kickout pass from Tatum, draw the hard closeout, drive it, and either find Tatum on the relocation, find Brown on the weak side, find a cutter, lob to the big, whatever it is. And Derek White is really, really good at that. And that's why he plays a lot at the end of these games. All right, so speaking of that guard line, you have Peyton Pritchard, who, of course, made the comments like a week ago that, hey, this after I'm done here, which I think he just kind of stepped in it. I didn't think that it's not <laughs> like he's a bad teammate. You see the guy when yeah. he's on the court. I don't know if anybody plays harder than Peyton Pritchard does. But you also had in your article that you think that or that a source said that they would maybe clean up that log jam in the summer. So do you think by the time 3 p.m. happens on Thursday that Pritchard's still on this team or do you think he's moved? I think he's probably still on the team unless it's part of a bigger trade we don't see coming. And this is a good point for me to say. It's what you don't hear about that happens under mm. Brad Stevens, right? Nobody knew the Horford thing was coming. Nobody knew the white trade was coming. And nobody yeah. knew the Brogdon trade was coming. No one was talking about that. That's why kind of said, Jakob Pertl, or we've heard about it for months now. I'm pretty certain that's not happening just because we've heard so much and it hasn't happened. I think it's, you know, unless there's, he's got something cooking there, it's going to kind of be one of those where we're all like, whoa, reaction. I think Pritchard's here because I think, again, to go back to that guard group, and this is what when you talk to, to people around the team or even talk to other teams, their sense is they don't want to trade White. They don't want to trade Pritchard because they know Marcus Smart tends to get banged up. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon's a guy who has a very long injury history. So we got to be very, very careful because what you don't want to do is find yourself in game six on the road in a playoff series and we're down to one guard because two other guys are out and boy, you know, wish we had Peyton Pritchard instead of that fifth big sitting on the bench that we don't really need, but was used as protection. So I think he sticks, but I do think this summer, I think there'll be two things. One, he becomes extension eligible. That's going to be really hard when you have significant money locked up in three other guards to reach a deal that makes sense for him. And I think they'll probably at that point try to do right by him of saying, all right, what did the playoffs teach us, whether they win it all or not, that we need? All right, can Peyton Pritchard be part of a deal that helps us rebalance, get things where we need, and gets him an opportunity to play? That's what I think we could see happen. But in the next uh, couple of days, no, I think he sticks just because of that. We've got to protect ourselves uh, depth-wise. Yeah, I mean, it may sound cliche, but you really don't want to rock the boat with this group. I mean, they've been the mm -hmm. best team in the NBA. They've been together for two years now, with the exception of like the Brogdons of the world. So might as well let them ride this thing out. The other thing is that TPE, I believe it's five around $5.8 million. What type of players do you think they'll try to target with that? Yeah, I'm not trying to be snarky, but guys who make less than $6 million, right? Because <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what you're looking at. And in the list of super impactful guys who make less than that, 
it's really small because yeah. there's a couple things with that. Generally, those are rookie scale guys. Teams don't usually like to give up rookie scale players, but th- there are some players I think that could fit in there. Like what's nice about that number is let's say they wanted to go get Jared Vanderbilt and they don't want to necessarily trade Grant Williams to make it happen because we're kind of doing an even swap there in terms of what the role and fit minutes would be. I think what if you're the Celtics, what you're looking at is you're saying, all right, we can do that. And instead of players, how about a pick? How about two picks? What does that look like for a guy like that? So that those are the kind of guys you're you're sort of looking at in that that spot there. And what I think should excite Celtics fans the most is in years past, it's always been, well, we have the TP immediately followed by, oh, we have all these tax concerns and you know, X, Y, and Z. And you know, and it's all those things that frustrate everybody as fans of like. Hey man, like I don't care how much you're paying for the team. I want to win. Like I, I want a duck boat parade, right? That's what I want, <laughs> right? And it's now you're not hearing that anymore. And a part of it is they're, in, you know, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. Like they're they're above the tax line, and they're basically every account is. They've told Brad, hey, if you got something that adds five, six million more above the tax line, which really with penalties turns into like fifteen to twenty million more. Good, go, go do it because we 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 believe in this group. So that's what excites me about this. And I think Stevens and not only Stevens, but Mike Zarin there is the assistant GM. Those are guys who know how to find moves on the edges that can really make those differences. So to, to your earlier point is, I don't think they're going to rock the boat too much with chemistry. I think it'll be rather than guys going out, I think it's more they add one guy via that, maybe a guy via the buyout market. They, they might do a small thing like, Salary dump Justin Jackson saves a little bit of money because we're going to add it back by using that disabled player exception to sign somebody. That's where I think the the Celtics are more likely to do their work than any kind of major blockbuster that sees guys headed out and got new guys coming in. What about not a blockbuster, but like an old friend, Kelly Olenek out there in Utah, (laughs) playing for Danny Ainge, of course, and... Look, Kelly, he's shooting the ball well. He just dipped under 40%, I believe, last night from three-point territory. Obviously, you mentioned his teammate in Jared Vanderbilt, who would be a nice fit as well. But you think there's any chance that they try to get Kelly back, considering that we've heard for, what, months now, Keith, that they're looking to add a big just based on Rob Insurance and Horford's age? Yeah, I, I so where I was told with them on adding a big, after Rob came back um, right around the holidays, there was less of a need of like, we got to get somebody because they'd seen him and it's like, he looks pretty good. And we, we feel pretty good about that. And that's, that was when I was told the Jakob Pertle stuff basically died because it was, or we've hmm. seen him. We can't offer Pertle a starting job if Rob is here and healthy, we can't play the two of them together. So now we're basically, well, we'd have the center position covered for 48 minutes a night. But then we got to pay portal this summer. Is he going to accept a lot of money to be a backup? That's where it sounded like that all was finished because it was Rob's good. Rob's good. Then Rob in the last couple of weeks, he's had a couple of ankle things that have gone on and that started to turn into, all right, maybe we do need to look, but I think you are looking more at a smaller move. Kelly Olenek, the challenge is matching salary is $10 million. So that's a little hard to get to if you're the Celtics. And then you start talking about things like trading Gallinari and another player to match the salary on it. I've been told they don't really have any intentions to trade Danilo Gallinari. One, it's not a good look. Um, they don't, he's working so hard to try and get back to help even this season. He yeah. wants to. The team does not expect that from, from everything I've heard. They are. No, probably not happening this year. But there's also a sense of if we trade him, 
Then we have to reuse the taxpayer mid-level next summer to sign somebody else. Whereas if we keep Gallo, we've got Gallo is becomes almost like an addition of sorts. And we have the taxpayer mid-level to add something else instead with that. So their best hope on a guy like Kelly Olenek is probably that trade deadline comes and goes. He doesn't get traded and he gets bought out or he's moved in another deal to a team that's like, we really don't need him. So they buy him out and that's how he becomes available. At that point, I think the Celtics would have a heavy level of interest because he can shoot, he can pass. He's a better defender than he's ever gotten credit for. He'd be a good fit in the front court. But trade-wise, I just don't necessarily see it. All right. What about like on the wing line? Do you think maybe that's something that would be more likely on the buyout market as well? Because I look, Hauser had struggled shooting the ball. I like the fact that Missoula got him in the starting lineup on Monday and he hit four threes. I mean, he had not shoot the ball. He had not been shooting the ball well for a while here. But you think about Tatum and Brown, I mean, especially Tatum, he's playing so many minutes just in terms of an innings eater during the regular season. You think there's any chance they trade for a wing or would that be more likely come buyout time? Yeah, I've been told before Luke Cornett rolled an ankle the other day, it was far more likely that they were going to get a wing than they were mm. going to get a big. It, big might be easier to get, but I was told they're okay with Blake Griffin being the fifth big and Luke Cornett being the fourth big because come playoff time, it's probably Al Horford, Rob Williams, Grant Williams. That's it. That's going to be your three big rotation. The other guys will only get thrown in there if there's foul trouble or an injury. And Yes, you want to be protected, but you, you you don't go adding millions upon millions in tax for a guy who might kind of play every once in a while if we really need him to. So I think they're content there. On the wing line, though, yeah, they're especially for these last 30 or so regular season games. I was told they really want to get somebody else to bring that minutes number down on Tatum or Brown. Their challenge is anybody who's really worth trading for, probably, again, a little bit out of their salary range that they want to trade for. So Bio market. Well, once again, you know, you you could be looking on the bio market, guys like Will Barton. I was told there's mutual interest if there's a buyout there. Uh, Justin Holiday, Terrence Ross. Um, these guys are all a little too expensive to go trade for, but those are the guys they could be looking for. And an interesting name, just to keep a just kind of file away. Josh Richardson can't be traded back to the Celtics because of the the deal they did to get Derek White. But if he makes it through the trade deadline and then gets bought out after that year year has passed, and then he would be eligible to return to the Celtics after February 10th. So that's maybe something to keep an eye on because when they traded him, they, that was a, you got to give something to get something. And we feel like Derek White is what we really need. They really liked Josh Richardson and what he brought to them. So if there would be any kind of desire to, hey, let's regroup. And the last thing I'll say related to the bio market is the Gallinari disabled player exception is 3.2 million roughly. That does not prorate. So unlike a veteran minimum contract, which is what the vast majority of bio players are going to get, and that's going to be prorated down to you know under a million dollars or so, the Celtics can really outspend other t- other players. If we go all the way back, some people are like, that didn't even work. Why are you bringing up this horrible memory? But Greg Monroe was a bio addition using the Gordon Hayward disabled player exception. So it is possible to do something like that just to have that little bit of spending power because what players prioritize on the bio market is I want to be on a contender. I want to play a role. And if everything else is equal, I'd like to like to make a little bit more money. The first two the Celtics can definitely offer. It's that last one is where they can beat some of their competitors for some of these guys on the bio market. Yeah, the Richardson thing is interesting to me because also we know that he's buddies with Tatum. So I'm sure Mm -hmm. Tatum would want to get him back. And just for the regular season, I mean, we know in the postseason Tatum and Brown are going to have to play 
a ton of minutes. So before I let you go, Keith, I feel like the most interesting team around the NBA is Toronto because they get all these guys, OG Ananobi, right? I mean, we've heard about even a guy like Chris Boucher and Fred Van Fleet, all these guys, right? It's, I mean, I can't imagine they trade Siakam at the deadline, but how different do you think this Raptors team looks like after Thursday? I think there's a chance they they do something. It's it's weird for a team that is like just under 500, just in the play and mix to kind of control everything at the trade deadline. But that's really where, where it's been. I mean, we saw the Nets tried to make that a three team trade by roping in the Raptors to get some of the Raptors guys um, there as they sent Kyrie Irving out and they were unable to, to pull that off. But I've been told Van Vliet is they're at least listening and they're, they're, they're looking to see what could happen there. Gary Trent Jr. Very, very available. There's a sense of Toronto is, all right, even if we don't do a ton, we don't know that we can keep him and continue with the lineup the way it is. Uh, Scotty Barnes is not, he's no longer like the super untouchable. We can't even really think about him in a KD trade like it was over the summer, but they're still not moving him. Siakam a little less so, but OG Ananobi is a guy. Everybody's kind of pounding on Messiah Jerry's. Well, I was going to say pounding on his door, but they're probably calling him, right? That's a little <laughs> more like it. Um, they're, they're calling him and saying like, Hey, yo, what, what do you think about OG? What do you think about OG? Because I think the, the, uh, the thing with him is, it's a very tradable contract, very easy number to match salary. And you've got teams that are saying, hey, we'll offer two picks. What about three picks? You know, well, where, where do we go? Now, we got to be a little bit careful with that. We heard the Knicks offered three picks. Not all first-round picks are created equal. They're offering a couple that are pretty heavily protected from other teams that may not convey for years. And by the time they do, they may not be very good picks. So that's where we got to be. You know, you got to kind of pull it up and look and like, what do they have to trade and start getting into it that way? But very, very interested to see where this goes uh, with Toronto because they're kind of the fulcrum for everybody. Everybody's uh, touching them one way or another. And it, it's not going to surprise me if they make a bunch of moves and look very, very different uh, here in a couple of days. Yeah, as long as they send those guys out west, I'm good with it, all right? Like, right? <laughs> I, Yeah, just get them out of the Eastern Conference. Don't have them play for one of these other contenders in the East. Yeah, we don't we don't need OG Ananobi with 0.4 seconds left uh, in the bubble launching oh. game winners. So. <laughs> that was a taco. That was a taco on the inbounder, right? right? Yeah, taco guard the inbound, yeah. I, I still, anytime there's a Celtics game on and it could be the end of the first quarter with like 0.234 seconds left, I always, my, my go-to tweet is guard OG. that'll forever be burned in my mind oh no kidding that is keith smith from celtics blog he does work for spotrack as well great article up right now on celtics blog celtics trade intel two days away from the deadline some really great stuff in there so i encourage you to read it make sure to follow keith on twitter too as we approach the trading deadline keith thank you so much for the time man i really appreciate it great stuff i appreciate it thank you so much for having me this episode is brought to you by state farm You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, great stuff there from Keith Smith as we get ready for the trading deadline coming up on Thursday at 3 p.m. Going to be real interesting to see what the Celtics do. I don't think it's going to be a big move, but maybe something, as Keith was saying, on the margins. All right, we got time for a call. Let's do that. 617-396-7172, the number. 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian, it's John in the car. What a fantastic Sunday if you're a Celtics fan. First, you got Kyrie out of the East, makes Brooklyn a lot weaker. And you got, from Golden State, Steph Curry out with a mysterious leg injury past the All-Star break. I really hope that Brad Stevens channels his inner Dave Dombrowski and upgrades this team. I don't care if it's Kelly Olynyk or whoever it is, they need some sort of upgrade in wing-slash-big department. All right, great stuff, John. I do think that Brad will do something, but as I was saying, I don't think it's going to be super big. But again, Brad has pulled off these moves where Derek White, nobody saw that one coming. So I do think he's going to do something to give these guys a little bit of help here. I wouldn't mind something on the wing line if they can get a big as well. Certainly that'll help just in terms of Rob, Al, insurance. In terms of your Kyrie point, I'm with you. I believe that the Nets are not a threat to beat the Celtics anymore. Even though they were just a small threat before, I don't think they're a threat at all anymore. The Curry thing, I mean, unfortunate for the Warriors. They've never really gotten it together this year. That's the one team like I really do not want to see out of the Western Conference because that team just has some sort of mental edge over the Celtics. I know the Celtics beat them last time in overtime. They got a little bit lucky there. The Warriors kicked their ass in Golden State. I don't want any part of the Warriors in a potential NBA Finals if the Celtics are lucky enough to get there. All right, I did want to get to this, though. My top five deadline moves from Boston teams since 2000. Number one on my list, and look, these are debatable, but number one for me is Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz you get for Nomar in that four-team deal. So Nomar goes to the Cubs in that deal. The Sox get two gold glovers in Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz. Cabrera from the Expos at the time, of course, Mankiewicz from the Twins. And remember the history of this. Nomar was set to become a free agent. The Sox were going to lose him. He was mad that they made the trade for A-Rod that was eventually ended by the Players Association or the Players Union, I should say. Remember, they had that deal done and A-Rod was going to take less money. He was going to take $28 million less over seven years, so $4 million per season. And then they shut it down, the Players Association. So Nomar was mad about that. And remember, he informed the medical staff that he would need considerable time off, more than just random days off but not a trip to the DL, the remainder of the season to rest his injured Achilles tendon. This is what Nomar was saying prior to the trading deadline. And Nomar that season, his defense had slipped. If you look at the totality, minus 12 defensive runs saved. That was 26 of 29 shortstops, minimum of 650 innings. Orlando Cabrera that year was six best among shortstops at plus seven. And Cabrera was good in the playoffs, 377 on base percentage, tied for second with 11 RBIs, drove in the same amount of runs as Manny did. In that run, Mankiewicz, of course, we know the defensive replacement for Millar at first base late in games, and Nomar wasn't going to work anymore. Nomar was starting to be a real problem, and that took a lot of balls for Theo to make that move. This is Nomar Garcia Parra, like the face of the organization at that particular point in time, along with Pedro Martinez. You trade that guy for Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz, but you don't win a World Series if you don't make those moves. So that to me is, look, you ended the curse that year. That was a major reason why. Number two on my list, and people may say I have this one too high, it's Isaiah Thomas. You get him at the deadline for Tayshon Prince. You may have forgotten he was on the Celtics. Marcus Thornton, a 2016 first-round pick, which eventually became Scal Labissier. 
in a three-team deal with Detroit and Phoenix, okay? So he comes over in 14-15. He's coming off the bench, but he looks really good, right? 19 points per game in just 26 minutes per game. 15-16, he goes up to 22.2 points per game, and he played in all 82 games. And then we saw real signs in the playoffs. Remember against Atlanta, you're down 2-0. He goes for 42. Then in game four, he goes for 28, ties up the series. Now, eventually you lose to that really good Atlanta team. Ironically, Al Horford was on that team. But then really he blows up. 16-17, the whole king of the fourth. He finishes fifth in the MVP voting, 28.9 points per game. He actually broke John Havlicek's record that year for most consecutive 20-point games at 41. It ended at 43. But remember, I mean, so many great moments for IT. And unfortunately, his sister had tragically passed away right before that series against the Chicago Bulls. And he ends up playing in that series. They win. And then in game one against the Wizards, he got his tooth knocked out. 33 points in that one. Hit two threes right after his tooth got knocked out. Game two over Washington, he went for 53 points. 29 and 12 in the clincher. And then he ended up missing the final two games against that Cavaliers team because of the hip situation. He never really got better from the hip. They eventually trade him for Kyrie. But the point being, at that time, what the Celtics really needed was a star. And they needed somebody to excite the fan base. He did that. He got them the number one seed in the playoffs. And he was just somebody that everybody wanted to cheer for. So that was such an impactful move at the deadline, especially considering they did not have a lot of offensive players at that particular point in time. All right, number three on my list, and maybe it's too early for this, is Hampus Lindholm. They trade for him last offseason or last trade deadline, did the Bruins. Euro Vakaninen and John Moore, along with a first rounder and a second rounder, and you give Lindholm the extension right away. And remember, these are deadline deals, okay? The Boston area has a great offseason moves, right? But these are deadline deals. So you desperately needed another top-tier defenseman. And Grizzlick, really good player, but obviously a little bit smaller. Great in the offensive end, not as great in the defensive end. Forbert, really good in the defensive end, not as good in the offensive end, although he's taken a step forward when it comes to that this season. But Lindholm is an elite player, number one in the NHL this year in plus minus at plus 33. And you look at the fact now he's at 33 points, which is one away from his career high, and that's in 51 games he's done that. And you look at when he's actually on the ice, right, with McAvoy, they're at 4.06 expected goals per 60 minutes with those two on the ice together. That's the best of any defensive pairing. Expected goals against per 60 minutes with him and Clifton on the ice. It's 1.79. That's second best. This guy's been incredible. You desperately needed another elite defenseman to go along with Charlie McAvoy. And you found that at last year's trading deadline in Hampus Lindholm. And he's been a major part of the best team in the NHL this season. Okay, number four on this list, sort of an under the radar one, but a very important one. Jason Bay, the Red Sox picked up him at the 08 deadline for Manny Ramirez. And remember, Manny had issues at that particular point in time. He spoke to ESPN Deportes right before the trading deadline. This is what he said. The Red Sox don't deserve a player like me. (laughs) This is ultimate Manny. During my years here, I've seen how they have mistreated other great players when they didn't want them to try to turn the fans against them. The Red Sox did the same thing with guys like Nomar Garcia-Para and Pedro Martinez. And now they're doing the same with me. Their goal is to paint me as the bad guy. I love Boston fans, but the Red Sox don't deserve me. I'm not talking about money. Mental peace has no price. And I don't have peace here. Okay. So (laughs) this is what Manny was saying at the deadline. Like it was done. The relationship was done between the Red Sox and Manny Ramirez. Even Remy at the time said that Manny had to go. Theo publicly said they would trade Manny. Manny pulled himself from a game against the Yankees that year, remember? And the Sox forced him to get an MRI 
to prove that he had no damage and he didn't have any damage. He pulled himself because he said he had damage to his knee. He didn't have any damage to his knee, right? So anyway, they needed to move on from Manny and they recovered really nicely with Jason Bay, right? Came to the Sox in that three-team deal. Mandy ends up going to the Dodgers, but Bay in the division series against the Angels, a home run in each of his first two games. He went seven for 17, 412 with two doubles and five RBIs against the Angels. In the ALCS, he had a home run as well. Remember, the Red Sox end up losing that series to the Tampa Bay Rays, but he hit 292 in that series with a 927 OPS. So if you look at it in terms of the postseason, 14 hits tied with Uke for the most on the team. 1105 OPS and a 471 on base percentage, right? So he was really good that year. And then next year in 09, he hit 36 home runs. And then, of course, he goes to the Mets and he sucks. So I guess you avoided the bad years of Jason Bay. But Bay had like an underrated year and a half run with the Red Sox. And especially considering that as great as Manny was, he was no longer going to work here based on everything I went through. It made a lot of sense. And Jason Bay really worked for them. You got to give them credit for that move. And then number five on the list is Seidenberg, Dennis Seidenberg. The Bruins picked him up at the 2010 deadline. And remember, he was injured in that postseason. But then he ended up on the top defensive pair with Chara. And of course, in that 2011 run, he was great. They shut down the Sedins. They had, what, a combined five points and two goals in the Stanley Cup did the Sedins. And all they gave up for Seidenberg was Byron Bitts and Craig Weller and a second round draft pick. Bitts barely played in the NHL after that. And... Then you look at Weller, never played in the NHL after that. Seidenberg averaged 27 minutes and 37 seconds of ice time in that playoff run, and he was a plus 12. There was like, even if you go back, there was some like fringy talk about him being in the Conn Smythe situation. So that was obviously a massive deal for the Bruins. Some honorable mentions here. Taylor Hall a couple of years ago, you got him for just Anders Bjork and a second round pick. He's obviously been really good for the Bruins. Akib Tlaib, who the Patriots got, because there's not a ton of deadline moves in the in the NFL, but... A seventh round pick in Tlaib for a fourth round pick. His first game here, 59-yard interception return. Second team All-Pro in 2013. So he had a nice run here, especially the Patriots had trouble finding corners for a stretch there, if you think about it really. Now, McCourty had one Pro Bowl year as rookie season as a corner, and then he wasn't good his second year as a corner. He turned into be elite safety for a good majority of his career here. But really, they struggled to find corners for a while after Asante Samuel. Coyle was a nice move in terms of now he's your third line center, but you got him for Ryan Donato and a fifth round pick. Since Donato's been out of here, he's been traded to San Jose. Then he went to the Kraken. Coyle was really good in that 2019 run too. Remember 16 points in that cup run, same as Krejci. And the other one last year, Kyle Schwarber, right? From the Nationals for Aldo Ramirez, the 18th prospect in your organization. I should say that was in 2021, of course. And Schwarber, after he makes his debut with the Red Sox, August 13th through the end of the season, 435 on base percentage, third in baseball. Walk rate was 19.6%, which is third in baseball. And it sort of had an effect on the whole lineup. You look at the walk rate for the Red Sox, pre-Schwarber, they were 20th. Post-Schwarber, they were third. On base percentage, went from seventh to third. He had his moments in the postseason, too. Remember the home run off Rasmussen in game three of the ALDS. He also had that moment where he took off his hat because, remember, he overthrew, like, the ball to first base, like way over, I forget who the pitcher was covering first, but he threw it way over his head. The next time he actually got it right, he took off his hat. Like the crowd loved Schwarber. And game three, of course, against the Astros hit that 430 foot bomb. So he had a real impact for that stretch run for the Red Sox. So those are my top five and the honorable mentions, top five moves at the deadline. We'll see if the Celtics, this deadline can get into that conversation. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. 
Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.